So we're in Isaiah 5, and we're going to be looking at 1 through 7. Um, Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it only yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. The briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. All right. Good afternoon, Echo Church. It's good to be with you on another Sunday to open up God's Word together. Uh, I, um, I, I just want to open with a time of prayer of thanks just for the worship and the, the, just the sense of God's presence that, uh, that, that is here. And let's just thank Him for being here. Father, God, you, you did not, we do not deserve to be near you. Uh, and because of Christ, we can come in, and, and, and your word even says we can come in boldly now. But, but that was a, an act of grace that we did not deserve. And God, for you to meet us on this morning as we gather, or this afternoon as we gather, God, what an incredible thing to be able to be in your presence together and to hear uh, you, hear, hear those come up and pray your gospel, to sing your gospel, and now by your strength, God, that they would hear your gospel preached. Lord, I pray that we would respond appropriately to who you are, because you are a holy God, and you have given us an incredible mercy. So as we open up your word, may we know it better as we spend time in it this afternoon. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're beginning a new series this afternoon. You may have seen the sign out there. Uh, we have been in First uh, Peter, and now we're moving. Now for the next 26 weeks, we're going to be in the book of Isaiah. So we're going to camp here for a little bit. When we're done with Isaiah, your kids will probably be getting out of school for the year. So just, just, just so you know, buckle up because we're going for a long journey together. Uh, I am extremely excited about this book. I'd like to start by giving us some context as to even why we're doing this and where we were if you've been with us the last couple of weeks. We just finished a series called Elect Exiles. It was a study in 1 Peter. We spent a few weeks in 1 Peter together. And, and 1 Peter really dealt with this interchange, this interplay between this word elect that he starts the, right off the very front of 1 Peter He calls us elect exiles if you're in Christ. He calls you elect exiles. And some of you are going to get tired of me saying this, but what elect means, it's this concept that we've been chosen, we've been adopted, we've been brought into a family. 
And then exile has this really other feeling to it, that we're far from home. We're, we're sort of removed from our home. And Peter wants us to understand the tension of the two in between. And so if you were with us the last few weeks, I hope that that came across to you as we opened up God's word together, that there's a tension we feel as we walk through this life between a sense that we have a home, but that home is not here, and that there is suffering and difficulty and pain happening here, but that's not what we're about in our home, but that home is coming. That home is not yet. And so we spent time each week really um, working through that theme. And the goal was to understand that suffering and persecution are a regular part of the Christian life. And just as Jesus endured suffering on his way to glory, so we will experience suffering on our way to glory, on our way home. So now, in the current series that we're in, we're going to see a similar idea as 1 Peter. Except now, our primary focus is on who Jesus is, specifically. We're going to put our eyes directly on Jesus and on who he is, but we're going to look from a little different perspective than 1 Peter, because we are going to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, as you know, this was a people writing about one whom they did not yet know. The name Jesus had not been spoken, but they knew that there was one coming. In the time of writing of Isaiah, we are 800 years before Jesus would come as a baby as we celebrate on Christmas. So we are 800 years. Now, I'm, I'm rounding that up, but we're, we're in the 700s for sure. The author and the recipients of this book had not yet known the name of Jesus. They had not yet seen him like we see him and like we know him. And yet, here's what you need to know about the book of Isaiah. Jesus is all over this book. He is all over this book. And it's a very similar picture of Jesus that we got in 1 Peter. Isn't that amazing? 1 Peter was written 700, 800 years after Isaiah, and we get the same picture, the same themes emerging of who Jesus is in Isaiah as we do in 1 Peter. What are those themes? It's this, that he, Jesus, is God Almighty, King of all, and yet he is the suffering servant of all. So Jesus is the God Almighty, King of all, and yet he is the suffering servant of all. So we've decided to entitle this series, The Sovereign Servant, because that's who he is. He is our sovereign king, and yet he is the servant that, we're, that many of you know, Isaiah 53 and that chapter. We're going to get there. It's going to take a while, but we're going to get there. But there's so much more in the book of Isaiah that I want you to see that's going to set up that glorious chapter, Isaiah 53, where Jesus is the servant who suffers for us, for our iniquity. So let's jump in now to the book of Isaiah. Here's what I want to do today. I don't want to do a full introduction to Isaiah. Okay, I don't want to take us into all of the history. You were going to get that, but you're going to have to stay with us 
for a few weeks because as we go in these first couple of weeks, we're going to get more and more of the introduction of who Isaiah is. So I'm not going to take one whole sermon in the very beginning just to lay all that out. What I'm going to do is we're going to go right into the text. We're going to go right in the text of Isaiah. In fact, we're going to jump into Isaiah 5. But here's what I want you to do before we do that. I want you to see how the whole book is divided, first of all. It's a pretty amazing thing how this book is divided. This book is 66 chapters long, so we will be here a while. Obviously, we're not going through every chapter, and obviously, we're going to have to speed up at times, and at times, we'll slow down, but here are the divisions of Isaiah. Isaiah breaks up into this. Chapters 1 through 37 could be summed up as the king reigns. That's the king, the king side of of God, of Yahweh, who is ultimately Jesus, is, is Yahweh in the flesh. And then part two, third chapters 38 through 55, the servant suffers and saves. And then part three, the king conquers. He's coming back to conquer. Chapters 56 to 66. So with that said, let's get into part one, and we'll be here for quite a few weeks as we're in, the king reigns, and the theme is going to be about there is a king in heaven who reigns. Let's get into our text. Isaiah chapter 5. Now notice that we're starting in the fifth chapter of Isaiah. What's been going on? What's been happening so far in Isaiah? Well, Isaiah has been acting like a prophet. You know how, how prophets act? Prophets are often, not always, but are often meant to bring the judgment of God upon the people of Israel. They are meant to speak God's words to Israel. And this is a low point in Israel's history as far as sin is concerned. Sin has reached a maximum in Israel's life together. And Isaiah is now speaking on behalf of God. And he's saying some specific things that Israel has done. For instance, Isaiah chapter 1 verse 4. If you want to flip there, you can see it on the screen behind me. Here is God speaking through Isaiah to the people. Ah, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers. Children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged, cut off. Wow. That's how Isaiah starts. How about this one? Isaiah 1.10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, some of you, if you've read your Bibles, you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and you know that to call a city or a nation Sodom and Gomorrah, that's not a good thing. Obviously, there is sin happening within the, amongst the people. How about Isaiah 1.13? God says this, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Now, you may be mixed up on what some of those things are, but what God is saying is to stop worshiping me when your hearts are far from me. 
There is a hypocrisy happening here in the nation. There's an outward sense in which they're doing what the Lord has asked. Okay, you want us to do this sacrifice, God? We'll do this sacrifice. You want us to celebrate this feast or you want us to fast on this day? We'll do it. But inside of their hearts, God says, you you have no desire for me. But even in the midst of all these judgments that I just read, God is still offering to redeem those who turn to him. Let's look at Isaiah 1, 27 to 28. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. So Isaiah is out there preaching to the people and teaching about both the judgment of God and, as we saw in in 126-27, the forgiveness of God for those who will turn and who will repent and who will trust him. Now, a lot of us think that the Old Testament is just, oh, that book, it's just so different from the New Testament, right? Have you ever been tempted to do that? You're, you're reading your New Testament, New Testament that's a lot more familiar in there. There's some letters, and we kind of get those, and there's, there's the Gospels. We all love those, the Gospels that tell the story about Jesus. And then many of us, when we think about the Old Testament, we just go, ah, oh, there's just some weird stuff going on back there. I, I, don't, I don't really get it, and I'm not really going to pay much attention to it. And to be sure, there's a lot of weird things in the Old Testament. To be sure. But the essential message of the Old Testament is the same as the central message in the New Testament. And what is that message? The verse that I just read to you. And those in her who repent, it says, shall be redeemed by righteousness. Is is that not the picture of the New Testament? Is the Old Testament not saying, Repent, turn from sin, turn to trust in the name they knew God by and we still know him by is Yahweh, by the way, Yahweh. Turn from your sin, trust in Yahweh your God. Now what's the New Testament message? Turn, repent from your sin, trust in Christ who is God. You see that the difference between the old and new is they simply, they knew the name of their God, Yahweh. They did not know the name of Christ, but as they turn and trust and they turn to trust in Yahweh, what they found on the other side of heaven is that they were trusting in one who would die for them that had not even come yet in human history. They were trusting that God would take care of the righteousness problem of mankind. Now in the New Testament, we look back on the cross and we see that in that one act, the righteousness problem of mankind was taken care of and that for all who trust in him, they can be redeemed by righteousness, just as this verse says that the people in Isaiah's day can be. So yes, there's some weird stuff in the Old Testament, but the central message is the same. But what was hidden in the Old Testament has now been revealed in the New Testament. So Isaiah is out there doing what a prophet does, speaking to the people and talking to them about what God says about them. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think they were listening? That's kind of the thing with a prophet, right? Nobody listens to you if you're a prophet. 
You're the weird guy. You're the kooky guy that's standing out there, the street corner preacher, right? And nobody wants to listen to what you say. Doesn't Jesus say that in Luke 13, 34? Even worse than not listening. Listen to what he says. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Jesus could sum up the city of Jerusalem by saying, yeah, pretty much every prophet that you've ever had sent to you, you have killed. That's a, that's a bad report card. And so we're going to jump into the text, and here's the main point. Here's the main point. Just like the people in Isaiah's day, we cannot produce anything out of our lives that pleases God unless we are attached to Jesus. Okay, I'm going to say that one more time. Just like the people in Isaiah's day, we cannot produce anything of our lives, out of our lives that pleases God unless we are attached to Jesus. So Isaiah has been preaching and the people haven't been listening. So what do you do? What do you do if you're a prophet and they are not listening to you? Well, you change your strategy up. And that's what we're going to see in our text right now. You change your strategy and you do something a little bit different. Let's read now Isaiah chapter 5. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So imagine Isaiah standing at the gates. He's, uh, he's been preaching to the people. Nobody's been listening. When all of a sudden he announces to the people, I'm going to sing a song for you all. Do you see that there? Let me sing a song for my beloved. So he says, hey, I'm going to sing for you all. Now, I can imagine the word gets out, right, amongst the people. Hey, you know that kooky prophet guy who nobody listens to anyways? He's going to sing. Isn't this going to be great? I mean, I can imagine the group gathering around and saying, what are you going to sing for us, Isaiah? And Isaiah begins with this song. And, and what is this song saying the song is about his beloved somebody that he loves Ooh, a love song i like these it's like a ballad you know like we're gonna get a song about somebody that he loves so the story of this ballad is about a vineyard owner who plants a vineyard and the vineyard owner does everything that he can possibly do for this vineyard that's the list of things that we see there in isaiah 5 he dug it and cleared it of stones the vineyard owner has done all he can do for this vineyard. And, and people are interested in this, right? We have a very agrarian society. We have a bunch of farmers. They know about vineyards. They're listening to Isaiah sing. They're drawn in at this point. And the vineyard owner, owner has done all he can do, but the vineyard does not produce. Now, if you have an ESV translation, the same one that I read, it says that the vineyard produced wild grapes. Now, if, if we're not, if we don't know much about farming or if you don't have a vineyard at home in your backyard, um, then we might go, you know, what's the problem with that? What's wrong with wild grapes? And there's actually, I think, a, a little bit of a translation problem here because the ESV says wild grapes, but I want you to just look for a minute at the Hebrew. Um, 
I, I know that you can't read Hebrew, but I want you to see something there. Look at the first, look at the first sort of group of letters. By the way, those are letters, Hebrew letters, on the far left. And I want you to see underneath you have sour, unripe grapes, okay, wild grapes. But then I want you to notice that there is a deep similarity between that Hebrew word and the one above it, okay, which is stench. Translation for this, it produced stink fruit. That would be probably the best English translation I think we could get based upon the fact that those two Hebrew words are really, really closely related to each other. It stunk. So it's not just wild grapes that we go, oh, these are okay, maybe not as sweet as the other grapes. No, this was not even edible. This was disgusting. This is the kind of fruit that is disgusting, nasty, stinky little bulbs hanging off of this wretched-looking little plant. That's the picture that's going on here. And the vineyard owner says, I've done everything I can do. Now Isaiah does something really smart if you're a prophet trying to get people drawn in. He asks for a little audience participation. Let's look at this verse, verses 3 and 4. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Notice that it switched, by the way, between my beloved's vineyard and my vineyard. Do you notice that? Don't make too much of that because what you're going to find in the surprise ending, you're probably already figuring out where this is going, is that his beloved and he are in some ways the same because he's speaking on behalf of his beloved, right? So he says, now it's my vineyard, and he says, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Audience participation now, right? You guys are a bunch of farmers. I've just sang a song for you. I've drawn you in. Tell me what I should do. Is there something that I haven't done now for my vineyard? Can any of you give me some advice? And I imagine if we paused the narrative at this point, people would be shouting back, well, did you think about this? Yeah, we did that. And everybody kind of at the end goes, I don't know. Now they do know what you should do with a crop that doesn't produce. And any farmer today would tell you the same thing. What do you do with a crop that doesn't produce? You burn it, tear it out, and start over with a new crop. Why? Because your land is very valuable if you're a farmer. Every single square foot of your land is valuable. That's how you're making your, your money and your living. So if something's not producing, you've got to rip it out and get something else in there. And I imagine the response coming from the crowd is this kind of idea. Burn it! Tear it down! You know, they're, they're yelling. The crowd is now yelling things at him. Let's see now what Isaiah says next in verses 5 and 6. He answers them. And now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. 
Now, until that last line, I can imagine the crowd going, yeah, destroy it. Yeah, trample it down. Until he hits that last line. Why? What's so significant about that last line? We're not dealing with a normal vineyard owner. We're dealing with a vineyard owner that can stop the rain. Uh Uh-oh. Now the people are starting to realize that they've been set up. There's a trap happening here. Isaiah is now springing the trap, and he says, I'm also going to command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Oh, no, he's talking about the Lord. Now Isaiah let the cow out of the bag. He's revealed his trick. This vineyard owner is the only one in the universe that can command the clouds not to rain. And now the people start to realize Because from the very beginning of Israel's history, if you didn't know this, one of God's main metaphors for his people was a vineyard. Israel was the vineyard of God from very early on. Look at Psalm 80, verses 7 through 9, for instance. Psalm 80. The psalmist says, Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. Now, you know the story. God brought Israel out of Egypt, right? You know that story. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. So things started out pretty well with God's vineyard. There's a parallel between that psalm here, you can see, and Isaiah 5. And then in verse 14 of Psalm 80, the psalmist says this, Turn again, O Lord of hosts, Look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine. Israel has always been God's vine. That is the picture that God has often used in describing his people. And now what God says is destruction is coming for my people because they have not produced fruit. What has come out of them has been destruction. Now he tells us plainly exactly what he means. Let's look at Isaiah 5, 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked, notice the fruit now, and he looked for justice. But behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Isaiah's announcement is clear. The judge of the universe has come looking for fruit in his vineyard. His people. But what he found was stink fruit. What he found was bad fruit would be another less intense translation. And as a result, what will the judge of all the earth do? He will pronounce judgment upon his people. Isaiah starts off on a real light note, doesn't it? This is like the beginning of the movie when everything's dark and there's no hope and everything just looks like it's completely, there's no chance. Fruit in the Bible is the outward effects of where a person has placed their trust in their heart. I want to say that again so so that we understand exactly what we're talking about 
when the Bible speaks about fruit as a metaphor. Fruit is the outward, visible effects of where a person has placed their trust in their heart. So I can say to you, is it not true? I can say to you, I've placed my trust in the Lord, right? Can I not say those words? And, and if I say those words, how would you know that those words are actually real or not? Because anybody can say them, right? And so if I say those words and I say, I have placed my trust in the Lord, what you should be able to see, and be careful, some Christians are brand new in the faith. Some Christians are, have, have backslidden, but they remain. The fruit is not real strong, but it's there, right? Be careful as we go looking at each other's lives. However, this is still true according to Scripture. Where I place my trust will be manifested or shown by what comes out of my life. What happens inside of my heart will never just remain secretly there. It will always be a display, for good or for bad. So the Bible is clear that there are two ways of living. You can put your trust in the Lord as your king and your savior, or you can trust in something else. And whatever you trust in, the fruit of that, whatever you put it in, is going to come out of your lives and is going to be visible for all to see. It will demonstrate where you have put your trust and this is what the Bible calls fruit. So how does this apply to us? How do we take a text that was written 700 plus years ago and apply it to today? Times of judgment in the Bible, first of all, are always meant to point us to the ultimate judgment that is coming for all when Jesus returns. So I have worse news before I have better news, okay? And it's this. This is not just a problem for Israel. It's easy to read Isaiah and go, oh, man, they're in big trouble. They, and then you sort of historically know that armies came, right, and attacked them at times. And you go, yeah, they got what they deserved. And we can somehow remove and forget the fact that they are sons and daughters of Adam just like we are. We descend from that same lineage that desires sin in our hearts just like they did. And the judgment of God didn't end in Jerusalem. It didn't end with the people of Israel. The judgment of the people of Israel is just a picture, friends, of the judgment that's actually coming for all of us. You're going to call me a, 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 right, a fire and brimstone preacher, and it's true. It's true, we're in Isaiah, and i got to preach a little bit like Isaiah for a second, okay? But you need to know, Scripture speaks about that coming judgment. And what will that judgment be like? Well, here's the point of reading Isaiah. That judgment will be something like the judgment in Isaiah's time. And what was the, what was the issue in, the, in Isaiah's time? The judge came looking for fruit. Is there fruit in your life? And you say, well, I, I don't, how, do I, how do I even know? Does Scripture even tell us anything about fruit as we know now from the old to the new? How do we bear fruit? That would be the question now that we would ask if we have really been caught up into this, into this thing that Isaiah has been saying. We go, I don't want to be like that, God. 
I don't want to be one of those for whom that destruction and that judgment is coming. So how do I break free from that? How do, where, how do I bear fruit? To see our answer, we've got to go to the New Testament. And we've got to go to a text that's deeply connected to Isaiah chapter 5, and that is John 15. Let's look at John 15, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Here's John 15. It says this, verses 1 and 2. Jesus is speaking. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Notice the similar scenario here. Do you, are you catching this? You, you have these similarities where we're all vines in a vineyard. God the Father is the one who comes to inspect the vineyard. And notice that he takes away, just like in Isaiah, the branches that don't bear fruit. And ultimately later, it says that he takes them away and burns them. The imagery is intense here. But Jesus places now himself at the center of this story. Do you see that? He places himself as the main centerpiece of this metaphor. Jesus is the vine now. The story has changed a little bit. He's the vine, and he's going to tell us now how to bear fruit. So, Jesus, we want to know. We've read Isaiah 5. How do we bear fruit? John 15, 4. Abide in me, Jesus says, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So the command of Jesus here in John 15 is to abide in him. And that answers our question that we asked from Isaiah 5. How do we not be like those people? How do we actually bear fruit in, in our lives? Jesus answered it 800 years later by saying, abide in me. Now what does that mean, abide The idea is to remain in or to live in. This word abide is similar to where we get, it's a word we don't use much anymore, our abode. If you call your home, my humble abode. Nobody talks like that anymore, right? But you may have heard that expression. An abode is where you live. To abide is the verbal form of that, to live, to live. What does it mean then to live in Christ? To remain is another translation. To remain in Christ. So we are to live in Jesus. And the way we would talk today about that, the way I would say this from the pulpit, is that we are to put our complete trust in Jesus. We are to put all of our eggs, all of our, pardon the expression, poker chips into that person, Jesus Christ. I'm not banking on anything else in my life. He is the source of all of my joy, all of my satisfaction, all of who I am. Now, let's just be, let's just be real. We have moments and we have days as Christians all the time where something seems tantalizing to us and we start to turn our eyes away from it. But a Christian does this. 
I'm realizing now that I've turned away from Christ. I'm repenting and I'm turning back to him. I'm putting my eyes back where they should be because I know that my deepest trust is actually in him. I'm abiding in him. And the imagery now of a branch that's deeply connected, notice that we're branches in, Jesus, in John 15. We're branches, and where are we? We are deeply connected now to the main artery vine, like the big one that comes up. And here we are coming off the side, and as we're deeply connected to it, what's happening there? What's happening is that, is that there's, there's now a flow of nutrients and resources that are coming into us from that main artery, flowing into our lives, and you know what? Out comes what? Fruit. Out comes fruit. And so we are commanded by Jesus in John 15 to attach ourselves fully to the main artery of Jesus Christ. And when we do, that power and those nutrients flow into us and fruit will come as a result. Now, I want to end like this. How do we apply this? A couple of points as we think about applying these two texts now, Isaiah 5 and John 15 together, and they're this. Number one, please pay, pay careful attention to this one. Hear me on this one, friends. The outward effects of where we put our trust is what is judged on the last day. I'm going to say that one more time. I want us to hear that. The outward effects of where we put our trust is what is judged on the last day. Your words will not ultimately matter. The outward effects of your life are what you will stand in the judgment for. Now, some of you might look at me a little, little squinty-eyed. Are you, are you being real, preacher? Here's the, here's the verse. Scariest verse in the Bible to me, this verse. Matthew 7, 21. Jesus is speaking about the judgment, and he says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will, who does, who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, notice that they're calling him Lord, Notice that they are calling him master over their lives, their leader, their king. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Didn't we do those things? And notice Jesus' response here. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, and notice the last clause, you workers of lawlessness. What kind of fruit? Stink fruit. So it leaves us asking, if, if we're actually being judged based upon the outward effects of where we put our trust... If we're actually being judged on that then how do we really produce fruit? 
And here's the final thing I want to say. Uh, Application two would be this. Fruit does not come because we strive for fruit. Fruit comes because we strive to be connected to the vine. That difference is actually one of those things that unlocks what Christianity, biblical Christianity, really is about. How do we actually produce sort of the the good works in our lives? Not by producing good works. Isn't that bizarre? Think about a tree for a minute. Think about a tree that is told. Imagine you're a tree. We're all trees in here. And we are told, you must produce fruit. The judge is coming through that back door, and he wants to see fruit, and you've got to produce fruit. So what do you do? You sit there with your branches and go, ooh, I just got to squeeze out some fruit. Right? I just got to try harder. What would be the equivalent? Well, I got to walk out these doors right now, and I got to sign up at a homeless shelter, and I got to walk five old ladies across the street this week, and I got to make sure that I'm checking my stuff off my list so that I can show to everybody else around me that I'm producing fruit. Do you see? Do you see my fruit? Trees don't produce fruit by, by, by trying to squeeze fruit out. How does a tree produce fruit? Well, if I could personify a tree for a minute, Where do trees strive? It's not do they strive. Where do they strive? Trees strive to get their roots down into the deep, damp, nutrient-rich soil underneath them, away from the dry, rocky, nasty ground that's directly above them. They go deep. And when they go deep, they grip into those nutrients, and the nutrients begin to flow in them. And you know what happens? Fruit begins to happen. Going back to the vine, how does the vine, if you're a vine for a minute, how do you actually produce fruit? You don't just put better effort into your fruit producing. You tie in to the nutrients, cling on to them with everything you have. And if you're clinging on to something else that isn't that main artery vine, you release it and get rid of it and go all after that main vine because that's where your nutrients are coming from. And you know what will happen Always, when that happens, fruit will produce in your life. And you will stand before God one day, and he will say, when you said that you put your trust in Jesus, I have seen by your life that that is a true statement. And we will, by God's grace, not hear, Lord, Lord, did we not? And to have him say, depart from me, I never knew you, workers of lawlessness. This is a difficult concept because it gets at the heart of where do works, where do our outward things that we do actually fit in in the Christian life? And here's all I'm going to tell you. Go hard after Jesus. And those things, those outward manifestations, they will take care of themselves. But you go hard after Jesus. Cling to him, throw off, as Hebrews says, anything which hinders and the sin which so easily entangles, and run with perseverance the race marked out to you, looking to the author and perfecter of your faith, Jesus Christ. Don't put your eyes anywhere else. Go entirely after him, and you will find your life to be changed. Are you struggling with some sin this morning? 
I don't have a, a list of things that you've got to do in order to just you know, get that sin out of your life. And if I did, you could do it without Jesus. What I do have for you is to say, run back to him because there's a, if, if I know my heart, you've taken your eyes off of him. Come back. Turn away from that sin and turn to Christ. And you will find that when the judge comes, you will not hear what God said in Isaiah 5. We will hear a different report when he comes to inspect our fruit. Let's pray. Father, we ask now a hard message for us, but God, I pray that the truth of your word would now be made clear to us in our hearts, that our striving is not after good works, our striving is to be after you. And then we will see, just like a tree gets planted by streams of flowing water, it all of a sudden produces fruit and it produces its, its leaves are beautiful and you can see the healthiness of a tree that is fully trusted and put its roots deep down into the ground. So we want to be that tree. We don't want our leaves to wither. We don't want our fruit to be stink fruit. But God, what we ask is that you would help us cling to you with everything that we have. We pray this in your name. Amen.